Well, hello and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. We're here with Season 1, Episode 12, The Outlier, featuring author Catherine Astolfo. Catherine is an award-winning author, mainly in the mystery genre. In 2012, she won the Arthur Ellis for Best Crime Story. Catherine has also written five novels, two novellas, and four screenplays. A Derek Murdoch Award winner, she is a past president of Crime Writers of Canada. To know more about Catherine, please visit her website, www.catherineastolfo.com. But before we bring you, Catherine, I'm going to read to you a story of hers titled The Outlier, which was featured in 13 Claws by the Maidans of Mayhem, 2017, Carrick Publishing. Before we get to all that, though, I want to talk to you about setup for a novel. How do you set up your novel? Do you do an outline? Do you research? Do you fly by the seat of your pants? What is your, your main uh, modus operandi? I know that many authors will tell you that if you get stuck, if you create a writer's block, your best bet is to create some form of outline. As you've no doubt guessed, this week's episode finds me with a bit of a cold in my throat, so I'm going to save my voice for Catherine's story, The Outlier. Hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy reading it for you. The Outlier by Catherine Estolfo If I'd paid attention to Marvin, none of this would have happened. For that matter, I should have seen the signs left by the burglar when he cased the joint. Whenever I take my semi-annual trips to St. John's, stocking up for the seasons, the hours of hard driving there and back again take their toll on this old man I have become, especially the early winter drive. This little spot isn't called Backside Harbor for nothing. We're the ass end of a narrow strip of land, technically an isthmus that juts out into the Atlantic. Backside is an outport, Pay attention to that word, out. It has a lot of uses here in Newfoundland. Outport family names go back many decades, even though most of those families moved out here during resettlement. There are a dozen villagers left, give or take. They think their shit smells good because they have those historical names. However, since none of us goes out, it's hard to tell who's still here and whether they really are a gill or a butt. I'm an outlier, a person who's come from away, so I get even less attention from any of the harbor dwellers, which suits me just fine, since being out of contact is my goal. I live on the hill above the harbor, in a little cottage, been here ten years now, one big room, with a living area and a kitchen, runs along the front part, the back has a bedroom and a bathroom. I have a corn-fed stove that keeps the whole place warm in winter, and the windows send cool ocean breezes in the summer. No electricity, but a big old generator gives me all the power I need. With such a small space to look after, you'd think I'd have taken note that first day when I found my mattress shifted slightly on the bed. Next, the shutter in the kitchen left open. The third day, a lack of snow on the doorstep, as though it had been blown away by someone's boot. My excuse, I was just so damn tired. 
That trip to the city is brutal. I'm creeping on to ninety years old next year, if I'm still here. I can't do three whole days away from home any more. I don't sleep well in those cheap hotels. Everything is just so noisy, like a big loud cell block in a federal prison. The day the kid arrived, I was still tired from the trip, not to mention the tasks I've ha had to face when I got home. I drowsed all afternoon with Miss Kitty. She's a big old tabby cat who wandered by one day and stayed. She likes to curl up on my stomach, making biscuits in the blanket with her paws. I sat and listened to the CBC on the radio, played some solitaire, did nothing and paid no attention, just like Miss Kitty. Marvin, on the other hand, sniffed and snorted everywhere during those four days. He knew there was something off. He can always tell when a stranger invades our privacy. Here's the quick version of Marvin's story. I was coming back from one of those voyages to the city when we were stopped on the highway by a rollover. From out of the damaged back end of the truck, down the road trotted a whole bunch of pigs. They'd been hauling them off to the bacon factory. Only Marvin made it as far as my car. The rest of the poor kind escapees got recaptured, run over by traffic on the other side, or disappeared into the brush. I watched this big guy waddle along the side of the highway, head up, going who knew where. He was simply scrambling fast as he could in the opposite direction of that truck. Thing is, I didn't think about what I did. I certainly didn't expect the result I got, either. I admired that pig's determination to get away, so I leaned over and opened my passenger door, and into the old car hopped Marvin. As it turns out, pigs make great pets. They're clean, smart, they'll eat whatever's on offer, and they like people. Marvin's a bit stubborn, likes his own way in things, but so do I, and so does Miss Kitty. We make a great trio. The kid came at night when I was fast asleep. There were three signs of his invasion that I could not miss. First, the sound of a chair falling over, though I didn't know that was what caused the bang until later. Second, Miss Kitty used her claws in fright to lift herself off me, even digging below the blanket and through my long johns. Third, Marvin made his squealing noise. A throaty, screechy kind of sound that feels like pins in your ears. I sat up straight in my bed and, what with the noise and the cat's nails, soon had my feet on the ground. I didn't need to tiptoe to the front of the house. Marvin was raising such a racket that a truck could have driven through the living room and no one would have heard it. The young guy was sprawled out on the floor. He'd obviously come in through the kitchen window, stepped on that rickety chair, and sent it and himself stumbling to the floor. Unfortunately for him and Marvin, he'd landed on the pig. I went for the guy without a second thought, lifted him off my pet, flipped him over onto his stomach, pulled his left arm behind him, and upwards till he made squeals of his own. 
In the meantime, Marvin scrambled to his feet, still carrying on, but now he was snorting with indignation. I reached over to the drawer nearby and got my fingers on a couple of cable ties. I soon had the asshole's hands tied behind his back. I rolled him over and clipped his ankles together for good measure. Then I lit the kerosene lamp. I checked on poor Marvin, who was still mad, but he looked and felt okay. Then I had a long gander at my intruder. He was a young'un, early twenties, maybe even late teens, fair hair and freckles. At the moment, his baby blues were liquid with fear and shock. I figured he didn't expect me to be home. Even if he thought I might be here, he didn't think an old guy like me could take him down. I put the chair back on its feet and sat. So, by what the feck are you doing in my house, I asked, using as good a Newfoundland accent as I could manage. He didn't struggle, just lay there panting for a moment. Are you going to call the cops, he finally gasped. Not much point to that. They're all the way over to Fishy Cove, and they're closed at night. I waited a moment. That's all you got to say? The boy's eyes were clearing. He looked almost defiant. I knew you'd say that. Say what? About not calling the cops. Did you now? I got up and stretched, feeling the takedown in my lower back and shoulders. Since we're all up, we might as well have a cup of tea and a yarn. What do you think? My visitor had the grace not to answer. We needed something to cheer us up. After all, we'd suffered a big shock. I gave Marvin one of his favorite treats, a mishmash of broccoli, carrots, and squash. He snorted a few times, but soon got distracted by the food. Miss Kitty still hadn't surfaced, but I put some tuna down in a bowl, just in case. I lit the gas stove and put the kettle on the burner. I got the Baileys from the icebox and poured a good measure into my teacup. While the water boiled, I took my handcuffs down and swiftly replaced the cable ties. I let him keep one hand free while the other was dangled from the chain and eye hook on the wall. He yanked on the chain once, but seemed satisfied that he was stuck. He settled in. I pulled my old armchair closer to the wall and propped the kid against it so he could sit up. Once the tea was ready, I sat on a chair angled so I could see the young man's face. We sipped in silence for a few minutes, like he'd just dropped in for a nice winter's chat. He should have thought to dress like a mummer, hide his face under a mask. Either the guy was dumb or he was new to breaking and entering. You thought I wouldn't be home, wah? No, I thought I could sneak in. That made me laugh. Well, I'd say the arse fell out of her on that one. You from around here? He shook his head. I'm from Vancouver. Whoa, you're way off your patch, aren't you? So are you. I chuckled and shook my head. Mind now, you're the one to come into my house. I gets to ask the questions. I know who you are, he said. It's my turn, then. Who owns you? Related to an outport family? You're not a newfie, he said, so stop talking like one. I laughed heartily. 
Reminds me of that old joke. The mother says to her wayward son, Son, why are you do these things to a me? And the son says, Ma, why are you talking like that? We're not Italian. I guffawed some more. I was beginning to have fun. That's what comes from living without other humans. You are easily amused when they do show up. I leaned over, still laughing. When I slapped him across the face, he looked as though I'd betrayed him. What are you doing in my home? I punctuated each word so he could understand me above the likely ringing in his ears. Tears slid down his cheeks, but he was determined to be rude and a liar. I needed money, he said. I waved my hands around the cottage. And you thought I'd have lots of it hidden here on the hill above Backside Harbor? You are dumber than I thought, and that's pretty dumb. I meant I thought I could take something and sell it. I smiled at him. He really was stupid. Like my teacup, I held it aloft, displaying the side with a prominent chip. How much will this beauty fetch? Was you born on a raft? When I stopped laughing, I scowled and leaned over him, snatched his empty cup. Maybe you can tell the truth. About the who. Who are you? No ballyragging this time. I used the quiet, menacing voice that tends to encourage reluctant truth-telling. He pulled the lids over his big eyes, fear crowding out the defiance. He thought he could hide the sudden vulnerability he was feeling. No. What? Why are they so many stupid criminals these days? In my days it took cunning and careful study of the details. The what-ifs, the contingencies, the backstories. Don't fucking lie to me, by. This time I must admit my voice rose a little. I, my name is Brent Hilliard. I do come from Vancouver. That's the truth. Well, Brent, nice to meet you. I'm Jason. No, you're not, he said. Jesus, isn't you a stunned one? He cried out when the cup landed on his forehead, bled like a sucker, too. I got another cup out of the cupboard and fixed us more tea. Mine got an even larger dollop of the Baileys than last time. I pulled out the lassie buns I'd bought in St. John's, a rare luxury that the stupid kid in front of me, had he any manners, ought to appreciate. I was a regular Martha Stewart. I handed him a clean handkerchief, too, so he wouldn't get blood on my floor. It's a bitch to get that stuff out of the carpet. I munched on one of those delicious treats while he blotted at his cut. With any kind of luck, he wouldn't feel like eating. Lots of people call me Jason, I said between bites. That's what you'll call me, too. He said nothing. Sulking, I supposed. So, we got the who and the why. I need to know the how. Or did I get the why? I've been thinking. Maybe there's another reason you tripped all this way to the backside. You thought I might have some souvenirs. Any other reason? He looked pretty scared now. Sometimes people get that way when they've been hurt. Not too many of us is used to being doused on the head, or on any part, for that matter. 
I'm, I'm kind of a reporter, he said. Kind of? Either you are or you aren't. You can't be kind of. That's like you're kind of a moose or you're not. He considered that for a moment. I work in the mailroom right now. My dad's the chief editor, and he insisted I start at the bottom. Uh-huh. Now that's some wise buy. I thought if I uncovered a big story, he'd, well, he'd promote me faster. I dies at that, fella. You are some kind of fool of yourself, so you takes off work and comes all the way out here because you think I'm a big story, huh? I took another lassie bun. I ought to be flattered, I suppose. After all these years, I'm still a big story. You'll always be a big story, he said. No one will ever forget what you did. I stood up so quickly that my chair fell backwards. I'm having trouble believing a dimwit like you found me when no one else has. Maybe you should use those smarts to show your father you're a hard worker instead of trying to take the easy way around. I stretched up and back, my hands on my hips, took a few deep breaths in my nose and out my mouth. Ten years of perfect solitude. No fools to hound me. No idiots to spread vicious rumors of my supposed exploits. And this goof, this low-life idiot, had cracked the mystery of my whereabouts? I had a difficult time calming down, I tell you. You might as well tell me how, lad. I righted my chair and sat down again, folded my arms and tried to achieve the kindly old man's expression. Have a lassie bun first. You must be hungry. Wally Munchty stared at me the whole time. I was a museum piece to him. I gazed right back, knowing full well the emotions I felt weren't visible. The boy's expression, on the other hand, clearly displayed curiosity, horror, fear, and even a hint of defiance. The newspapers always described my eyes as dead. How can eyes be dead in the face of a person who is alive? Impossible. They meant devoid of feeling, uncaring, calm, nothing to see here, back away. That's what they should have said. This boy didn't back away, though. I wondered if, instead of stupid, he was a little bit like me. He cared about nothing and no one. In his case, his sole purpose was self-aggrandizement. Maybe he was more worthy than I thought. All right, hope you liked your breakfast, he nodded, unable to halt the manners he'd clearly been taught. Yes, thank you. I let the Newfoundland accent slip, winding him up letting him think he'd gotten through. Tell me how you found me, and maybe I'll give you a story to take away with you. Brent sat up straighter. He was clearly pleased and excited. He would never make it as a reporter. He was far too easily manipulated. I have some connections in the prison. The last one you were in, he said. I nodded, though I felt like saying, Well, duh. My friend was a guard there. He got me an interview with your old cellmate. Brent, you broke into my home. I am hosting you with great patience. I don't expect lies. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. 
I meant a guy who was in the same segregation block as you. You know, the protective solitary cells where... I guess I know all that. Stay on point. He nodded, eager to please me now. Yes, yes, of course. Anyway, this prisoner talked quite a lot to my friend. He claimed he'd heard you say to your lawyer that if they ever granted parole, you'd go to the other side of the country, like Newfoundland, and hide out. Those damn cells were like echo chambers. Okay, so did you search all over Newfoundland for the last ten years and just get lucky? Of course not. I was nine when... All I had to do this time was point my finger. Right, right, on point. So my friend kept in touch with this fellow even after he was released. By coincidence, the guy settled in St. John's. He told my friend that he swore he saw you in town one day. I sat in silence for a moment. Saw me in town? Me in my silver wig and thick glasses and beard? There had been a few times over the years when I'd felt as though someone had been watching, when I caught a pair of eyes that lingered a bit too long on my face. I'd always chalked it up to paranoia. Damn. As they say, just because you think people are watching you, it doesn't mean they aren't. And what did you do with the information? Brent looked a little embarrassed. I hired a P.I. in St. John's to look out for you, in your disguise like the other fellow described. Kevin's no frills. You paid a guy to sit in a grocery store all year? No, no, of course not. I just hired him for the week the con said he saw you. I figured if you were staying somewhere isolated, you'd have to stock up, and you probably did it the same week every year. He sure looked proud of himself. I was surprised by his ingenuity. That's actually pretty smart for a dumbass, I said. Well, the P.I. was the one who suggested, and he knows you found me? Brent looked confused. He was the one who found you. He followed you up here and called me to give me the directions. So that's who the burglar was, I mused. Pardon? We had us a burglar a few nights ago, or at least we thought that's what he was. Guess he was your P.I. instead. Brent nodded eagerly. Maybe, though I'm surprised he would come into your house. I shrugged. Maybe he was after me teacup too. Well, Paul, let's face it. You are the most famous serial killer in Canada. Lots of places in the U.S. too. They even made a movie and some television, if only he hadn't pushed. He was some stunned, that kid. Didn't even notice the look on my face as he prattled on about my crimes. The ones I did. The ones they say I did, but wasn't convicted for. There are lots and lots of people who believe you should never have been paroled. There were quite a few protests against it. Did you know that? Brent asked. He still thought we were having a conversation. I did know that, I said. I got attacked quite often, both inside and outside. I read that. Can I quote you when I write the story? That you can quote me all you like when you write the story. I can't believe it. 
You are not what I expected at all, he said. What did you expect? He paused, a look of embarrassment flashing through his eyes. He even blushed a little. A monster, I guessed. Not a harmless old man who serves you tea and lassie buns. Well, you did slap me, Brent said, and you threw the cup at me. But, well, I didn't think you'd let me write the story, to be honest. Oh, me nerves, you got me drove, I said, so quietly that he kept on flapping his mouth. People are going to go nuts for this story, he said. My dad will have to promote me, and I'll be a real reporter, probably take over his job when he retires. Do you think people will change their minds about letting me out when they read how old and harmless I am now, I asked. I do. I can write it for sympathy, if you like. Explain a few things if you want me to. Explain that I didn't do half of what they claimed, you mean? Sure. If that's your story, I'll tell it. I stared at his small, petty lips with their satisfied smirk. The mouth that formed a silent, oh, when I broke his neck. Well, the story would be wrong, I said to his truly dead eyes. Once you have a monster caged, you should keep him there, or keep him away from people. Let an outlier be. The silence was perfect. Miss Kitty came out of hiding and began to lap up her tuna. The kid wasn't as much work as the burglar had been. That fellow was a big bugger. Belatedly, I felt a grudging admiration for him, too. He'd never let on that he was a P.I., nor did he rat out the kid. Maybe he knew there'd be no tickets out of the harbor, so he kept himself to himself. I figure I'll only have to do this one more time when I pay a visit to my old pal from prison in St. John's. Good thing, too. I'm getting too old for such excitement. And Marvin's getting too old for such rich food. I think I mentioned that pigs make great pets. They'll eat whatever's on offer. The End And that has been The Outlier, a fantastic story by Catherine Astolfel. I hope you've enjoyed it, despite my very, uh, my very iffy reading voice and this terrible cold I've got, but I've really enjoyed bringing it to you. And now I'm thrilled to bring you our interview with Catherine Astolfo, my very dear friend, Good morning, Kathy. Welcome to Dead to Rights. Thank you. For our listeners, this is Catherine Astolfo, and Catherine is the author of Sweet Caroline, as well as the Emily Taylor series, which is um, published by Imagine Books. Um, that includes The Bridgman, Victim, Legacy, and Seventh Fire, all of which are terrific books if you love mysteries. And uh, Kathy, how are you this morning? I'm very good, Donna. Thank you. How about you? Not bad at all. You were saying something earlier about floodwaters. Tell me that thought. Yes, uh, Brantford experienced a terrible flood, especially downtown. Um, luckily, we are on the other side of the river, but uh, the, there was a huge ice jam, 
And it overflowed on the banks, and a lot of people had to be evacuated. It's that kind of winter, isn't it? It's been really, really unseasonably mild this February, and um, I I don't know what we're in for as March approaches. (laughs) I know. That's the thing we were worried about all along because of the the snow and ice and then melting and snow and ice melting. It just caused a huge amount of ice to uh, lock up by our bridges. That's right. That's right. Any low-lying areas are, are definitely at risk. And now, yes. Kathy, I first got to know you when we were working together on the Crime Writers of Canada Executive Board, and at the time, you were president of the CWC. We had a great time working together. As a matter of fact, I remember the first day that I met you, I was with Melody Campbell, and I met you downtown, and you said, we are going to have fun. And you were absolutely right. We had a lot of fun. Can you tell me a little bit about um, one of the things that I'm struck by with a lot of authors is how they want to give back to the writing community, and I know that's a big driving force with you. Can you tell me a little bit about your time leading the CWC board? Well, Donna, I do agree that we had fun, and our board was amazing. That team really worked hard to, we were, at that time we were trying to sort of reestablish Crime Writers of Canada as a force to be reckoned with, and I think we accomplished our goal. It's, it's an amazing organization for new and, uh, you know, authors who have been around for a long time. Um, and I, I would say that I, I got more out of it than I gave, because I got to meet lots of people that I have formed lasting, lifelong friendships with, first of all. Um, I learned so much about the book industry and publishing industry. I uh, also got to meet some of my rock star writers that I (laughs) completely admire and be able to say, you know, I have spoken with them and had some, you know, sort of a relationship. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was... It's a, it's a great thing to do. It sounds like, well, that'll cut into my writing time. Mm-hmm. But really, what I found was it, it was an impetus and an inspiration, and it really made me uh, write more, actually. Yes, 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 exactly. It's very motivational to, um, to immerse yourself with people who share your passion. Um, and everybody exactly. I speak to says the same thing, that when you give, you always get more back, don't you? You really do. You absolutely—it's—it's it's a truism. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds cliche, but it's not. It's—it's it's actually very true. And on top of all that, we really did have fun. I mean, I can remember great, great times of laughing. We—we we, uh, for our listeners who won't know this, just so we don't keep this as an inside thing. Um, on the CWC board, we meet every, or we did when Kathy and I were on it, we met every month, and we would use Skype or a telephone service, and about seven of us would be on the phone together. How many, Kathy? You would probably remember. Yeah, uh, well, I would say, I think it was around seven or eight. Uh, you know, I honestly, I, I, know. I don't remember either. I know, and in the early days of Skype, we would get some wild sounds coming through on that, wouldn't we? <laughs> we did. It was, it was quite such fun. such a, a different kind of... Um, method because at that time you couldn't see more than I think maybe four or five people Mm -hmm. so very often we didn't have one another's pictures so you didn't have the you know the the um 
body language and gestures and so on, and I found that hard to adapt to. Yes. Uh, and we, yeah, and and sort of tripping over each other trying to get our opinion in. Yes, yes, and disembodied voices. Uh, that was in the early days of Skype, and there would be these little voices coming through, and you'd never be really completely sure who was even speaking, you know. <laughs> But it, it was in keeping with what we were trying to do in the Crime Writers of Canada at the time. We were trying to embrace new technologies in the industry, new ways of confronting the writing industry, and um, new ways of making sure our members could participate fully in in yes. uh, in the art. You know. Yes, and and try and do that across the country. Yes, and that. That was the tricky part, was trying to form those relationships across the country. And, you know, uh, as you said, we all had the writing, especially the mystery crime writing, in common. And we wanted to capitalize on all our strengths and our Mm -hmm. commonalities. And that was, it was difficult to do in those days. It was. It was really difficult. And if you're listening to us in uh, Europe or in the United Kingdom, you probably don't have the sense of what Canada is like. So when Kathy talks about authors across the country, we're talking about it's a pretty vast country with a lot of diverse regions and regionalism and um, people who come at it with their, their own points of view. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to get together because, I mean, really, you have to take a long flight to get from Vancouver to Toronto and a pretty long flight from Halifax to Toronto. And often Toronto, because it's the center of the book publishing industry. um, Or as we like to say, the center of the universe. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) But it, it, uh, you know, it really does have the more uh, publishing companies situated here mm-hmm. uh, than, than in other places. Uh, I, I believe that's still the case. And uh, so it tended to be, you know, oh, Toronto wants everything there. And um, that was, it was difficult to overcome that, but we did. It was, and, mm-hmm. and now we, we have a president who's uh, a Westerner and, um, you know, we, we have bridged those gaps in this, the best way we could, I think. We have, and a lot of that started under your leadership because you, you approached the entire industry with a very inclusive attitude. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about your time on the board because, um, you know, I know it doesn't relate directly to your writing, but it does relate to the way you approach storytelling. You're very inclusive in your approach to almost anything, and uh, it comes through in your writing. Oh, thank you, Donna. Yeah, I I think I learned that from my years in education. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're not the first teacher to have said that to me. <laughs> Your Sweet Caroline novel is a standalone, and it's a taut psychological thriller. When I first read it, and I think I was one of the first readers of it, I was compelled to review it, and I don't review a lot of books. Um, I'm going to tell our listeners what I said about it. Uh, Here we go. It's a dark and compelling journey. Sweet Caroline is simply unputdownable, a riveting study of human pathology Madness at its finest. In my opinion, this is Astolfo's best work to date. From page one, it reveals her intense understanding of the criminal psyche, an outstanding novel. It's quite different from your other works, which are also really exceptional, but it goes down a different path. And so I was curious, what was the basis for moving you toward this particular protagonist and this story of compulsion? 
Um, that's a really good question. I think that it stems from my time in teaching. Uh, when I would, uh, and also uh, I took my degree in psychology, and just getting to know all those little personalities, and sometimes there would be one of those that you would just wonder why they turned out the way they did. In other words, uh, they were budding little psychopaths, really, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, it's, and it's a frightening thing to think that this child, right from the beginning, shows no compassion for others um, and is just completely self-centered. Mm-hmm. And I always, I, you know, I was always fascinated by that whole nature-nurture uh, question and the entire psychopathology of people who grew up to be uh, someone who just really thought they were the center of the universe and no one else really existed or mattered. Except in so much as they can serve the psychopath, him or herself. Um, Yeah, because I I share your fascination with this particular subject, and I've done a lot of research on it as well. And um, yeah. And I agree. It's, it's sometimes you can actually spot it. And um, having been a teacher, it must have been very disturbing for you whenever you thought you could identify something like that. It was. Uh, I mean, I really, in, even in uh, Legacy in uh, the Emily Taylor series, I explored uh, one of, sort of an amalgam of uh, kids that I had come across. And luckily, they were a small percentage. Uh, but it is really um, a phenomenon that I have, as you say, I have found fascinating too. Mm-hmm. And I've done a lot of research. And as I said, you know, my, my degree was in. Uh, psychology and I really looked at abnormal psychology as they called it back then mm-hmm. um, and uh, what do they call it now um, I think they probably have a, a better title than abnormal because <laughs> <laughs> because I know I studied abnormal psychology as well at U of T and um, so I, I'm just curious what they call it now I'm gonna have to google that <laughs> I will too it's, it's, it's a good question because I really don't know but I bet they have come up with something that's a little you know mm-hmm. less mm-hmm. Uh, of a label than, than and it's a very hot topic right now in particular from the point of view of someone in a position of direct authority like a teacher because when you spot these things and I know I've spotted them I've raised three children and all of my children have had friends and I can recall one friend that I could have sworn in my own heart and soul had leanings towards psychopathy and um but you don't see the behavior, so there's really nothing to report in many cases. There's just a, an underlining, cringeworthy kind of feeling towards a, a certain child. And they're so young, you don't want yes. to label them. You don't want to put your presumptions onto them, and yet something bothers you. Yes, and when you think about that in terms of for instance, what happened in the United States very recently and continues yes. to happen uh, because these these people have access to guns. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it's the same old story. They talk about, people who knew them talk about how they had concerns for them right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so in, in Sweet Caroline, I looked at that and I said, okay, what 
what sort of thought processes happens inside that person's mind. And so what I pre- tried to present was um, the, the front that they put on. They're charming. They're, they're mm-hmm. often, um, you know, very smart. They, mm-hmm. uh, they think they're normal. They mm-hmm. think that what they are doing and saying and their perception of the world is the, the perception that everyone has. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they know that they can manipulate people. They know that they can, uh, you know, play the odds and try to turn them in their favor. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I really wanted to explore that from the perspective of an unreliable narrator and uh, her friend as well, who both of them really in their, their own ways were psychopaths. And mm-hmm. people have said there's a diary in there and people have often asked me, yeah, who wrote that? And I said, well, who do you think wrote it? <laughs> really, <laughs> really I, either of them could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it is. It's, it's, it's really compelling. I highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in that type of fictional study of a personality and a persona. It's titled Sweet Caroline by Catherine Astolfo, and you can find it at almost any book retailer. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it, I, I am quite proud of it. Plus, I... I weaved in there the story of my children's heritage because my children are, uh, the, uh, their descendants were um, black slaves who came up through the underground and uh, they married into the native population, actually very close to here in Brantford. And uh, then there were, you know, a lot of intermarriages that have happened since. But mm-hmm. um, that heritage always fascinated me too. So I, I had... I put sort of the history of their family alongside this person who didn't really know who she was and mm-hmm. really is caught in that, um, first of all, there was a lot of child abuse, but also uh, the fact that she really didn't know her roots. Mm-hmm. And once she discovered them, I mean, she had so many mixtures that she was really a, a very confused personality. Mm-hmm. And that's not the first time you've written about uh, about cultural roots as a motivator for your characters. Um, I'm thinking of a story that was in one of the 13 series that um, begins with a, a festival of sorts. Can you remind me? Yes, actually, uh, that one was called The Three R's. And um, thank you for remembering that, that one. Um, and it stemmed from my research into Sweet Caroline, into that that history, that particular history of my children, um, and I, I ran across, I went to this, this place that gave me a horrible feeling when I stepped in the doors. I don't, I didn't know why, I just felt that, you know, sometimes when you get that instinct, yes. uh, it, it feels almost haunted. And the hairs uh, stand I, up on the back of your neck, yes, yes, I know the feeling. Yeah, exactly, and I had no reason for that, that I, no logical reason. But when I sat down with the archivist, because that's what I was there for, turned out that this was the Mohawk Institute, which was the first residential school in Canada. Oh. And yes, and so she showed me some of the archives that had to do with the building because I told her, I said, I, I can't believe that this is here in this mm-hmm. little beautiful little town. Yeah. And she said, oh yeah, it was like a, a massive secret for 
Decades. And I'm going to and interrupt, and I'm sorry for doing this. I do this occasionally sure. because our listeners, I hope, are all over the world. And if you're not familiar with this particular history, I invite you to please Google the history of Canadian residential schools, and I think you're going to experience the same chill that Kathy is talking about. Yes, thank. Yes, that's a good, uh, good uh, addition. Yeah. It, because people all over the world don't necessarily know about this dark side of Canadian history. Mm-hmm. Um, and really back then, and that's not that long ago, no one else knew either. And so I felt compelled to write something about it um, just from my perspective because I know, you know, even though my children have that heritage, I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I wanted to write uh, something just to call attention to it. And so the three R's was really from the the uh, perspective of Emily and Langford's uh, adopted daughter uh, and her experience meeting um, an Indigenous woman who told her about uh, how she had been in this uh, terrible situation in the residential school. And it was a beautiful and, story, the three R's. I, I, I'm recalling the scenes, and I, I don't want to give away the story, but I'm recalling the scenes between Emily and Langford's daughter and, and the native uh, Canadian woman near the end of the story, which are, are truly haunting. Yes, yeah, I, I, I hope I... Well, actually, um, one of our friends, Joan O'Callaghan, who's also a writer, um, she came up to me after I did a reading on the three R's, and she said... I'm from, I grew up in Brantford, and I had no idea mm-hmm. that that existed. Mm-hmm. So it was and if Joan doesn't know, it's not widely known. She was on the show. She was uh, our first author on the show, and um, oh, awesome. her reach yeah, is I'm wide. Sure she, there's not a lot she doesn't know. I have such great admiration for her widespread knowledge, you know? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And for her not to know that, that was really, she couldn't believe it. She was yeah. amazed. Yeah, it was yeah. telling. Now, um, the Emily Taylor series, which is uh, published by Imagine Books, and I've already given the title names, but I'll give them again, The Bridgman, Victim, Legacy, and Seventh Fire, which are terrific titles, by the way. It's a mystery series, but it's also a sweeping love story that spans many years. It's um, between two people who live with a secret past, and I know that you're not going to want to reveal what the secret itself is, but without... Big spoilers. Can you tell us about uh, Emily and Langford and what makes their love special? And what are they running from? Yeah, I think they they represent, in in my mind anyway, the, the sort of... Uh, the stories are a lot to do with social justice issues. And some of them are very difficult. The Bridge Man, for example has to do with animal abuse. And I know everyone cringes when they hear that. Mm -hmm. And just as they cringe when they hear anything about any kind of abuse of someone who is some creature that's innocent, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it be human or or what. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's difficult to think about that. But um, it it exists, and it's so widespread. And sometimes we are the innocent... um, you know, promoters of that because we, you know, for instance, pick up a puppy or a kitten at a, a suspect place. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that was, you know, part of my motivation in, in those uh, novels was to highlight some of the social justice issues that I was 
um, appalled by or interested in or wanted to bring to the uh, public consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so Emily was kind of almost the vehicle uh, at first. I thought she was the vehicle to drive the social justice issues. And later she became the center of, of everything. Um, and so she was in, in some ways the, the light, the hope, the love, and the love between herself and her husband was amplified because they had been through so much mm-hmm. and because they had been separated for a long time. Uh, and it's, it, you know, right from the beginning, it's not a spoiler. We know that, um, Langford has spent some time in prison. Mm-hmm. We don't know why until the very end. And then that, the very last book, uh, in the series explored, um, wrongful convictions, which mm-hmm. was another, uh, you know, kind of interest that I had and, uh, and that I wanted to highlight. So uh, to me, uh, they, you know, even though I've explored some really dark issues, the ending is always, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the a good wins out. Yes, which is a reflection, you know. Catherine, I know you well enough to say that that is a reflection of who you are. And, um, and good must win, especially in these troubled times. We must never despair. We must never give in to despair. But at the same time, we, we don't need to hide our heads in the sand. We can face these dark truths head on. We really can. Oh, exactly, Donna. That's, that's mm-hmm. very well put. I agree that, you know, love, community, um, all of those hope, uh, faith, all of those qualities that are, are inside most human beings uh, must win out. And they, I believe it will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what is the alternative? We cannot plan for defeat. Yeah. <laughs> we right. must You're we right. must plan for the world to be better, not worse, because worse means so extinct. True. I mean, it really is. It's the wrong path. And and I'm fascinated uh, as you are with the whole issue of wrongful imprisonment, which um, mm-hmm. you know people are beginning to really uncover something about this and and uh, discover something about this, and it's just horrendous. I I, I, I think a Seventh Fire could have really been titled Seventh Circle, almost. You know. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I. I... In some in some ways, I think uh, I love that Ojibwe um, uh, philosophy about the seventh fire. That we have to go through uh, a terrible time where we don't know where we're headed, and we're extremely um, confused, and we don't have anyone any true leadership, and it become has to come from the grassroots to mm-hmm. overcome this period of uh, where. So many things are happening that we're we're afraid, and we're uh, we as you said we're almost in despair. And once the community rises up, uh, the Ojibwe philosophy says we get to the eighth fire, mm-hmm. which is the level of a, a new renewed peace, a renewed place that is different from what it was, but is also better. Mm-hmm. And you know, so uh, I really believe that we are we might be in a seventh fire. Um, circle right now, and yeah. then hopefully we will get to our eight fires. And and, and when we take that out of the esoteric realm and we put it into what people can understand in the earth of their daily lives, mm-hmm. really what it means is don't cling too viciously to the past. 
I mean, we love to glorify the past. It was always better back then, except Uh it really wasn't. Put some truth in that. And, uh, you know, don't cling too firmly to things that are really going by the wayside. Make a little room for the new. You know, you may love your traditions, and that's quite all right. That's valid. But make some room for the new in your daily lives, and you might be surprised. And we will have cycles, and people have to cling to that, that, you know, these cycles of things that are happening that we wish weren't happening. Well, we can make that change. We have to cycle it out. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not that that things will be perfect from now on. Um, Just as in our everyday individual lives, so it is with the the world, Mm -hmm. um, our community of Mm -hmm. the world. And, uh, yeah, we we do have to work toward that eighth fire, that better place, and look forward to to change that is better for everyone. It's a beautiful philosophy, and it's not just a beautiful philosophy. It's also something that um, if we can embrace it, we can improve the world. I I believe very strongly in the connectivity between individuals and the greater world, Mm -hmm. and um, I I see almost everything we do in ripple effects, and it's one of the reasons why I was so driven to start this podcast, because I really see everything in ripple effects, reaching out, Mm -hmm. getting different points of view, um, stirring things up a little bit, making people think in a different way. And I think if they can take that out into their day their day can be modified by that kind of thinking. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. And I so admire you for doing this. I mean, (laughs) it it does. No, it takes a lot of persistence and time and uh, creative creative thought. uh, But it's like everything. You get so much more back than you give because having the chance to promote the thoughts and the work and the ideologies and and the concerns of people like yourself, having a chance to put that out into the world and let people see and hear it and um, just just get to know writers, just get to know yes. writers uh-huh. because they write yep. for a reason. It's all about expression, you know? That's right. And anyway, enough about me. What do you think of me? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. No, but really, I I want our listeners to get to know you, Kathy, and to enjoy everything about your unique outlook. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what's important to you right now at this moment on this day? What kind of things are you interested in working on, being involved in? Um, You know, family has been front and center recently. Uh, You know, again, those those cycle of crises where, uh, you know, certain things are out of your control sometimes and Mm -hmm. they happen to you and to your family. And so uh, certainly I have, you know, kind of burrowed in for the last few months to uh, focus on family, which all of us have to do at at some point or another. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm also, I I do like to be busy. I do like to, uh, you know, be out and about with with my mm-hmm. fellow writers and uh, and so I I have concentrated recently on uh, the Deadly Danes mm-hmm. because they're my yeah they're my critique group um, and they're closer uh, to home than unfortunately to my uh, my colleagues in Toronto but um, uh, as far as writing is concerned and then the rest of it has been um, the rest of my time has been spent on uh, some of the family. Um, concerns that we have right now mm-hmm. um yeah so it's it, it's it's busy it's um 
you know, there's those cycles of sad and cycles of, of hope and happiness and joy and just being grateful that I am surrounded by this fabulous family that I have. I'm so lucky to have. And mm-hmm. my friends, my circle of friends are outstanding. You know, I, I mean, like yourself, Donna, really, I... We've got I, a great um, group. We really do. Like, I, I have to say, you know, um, and, and it started, it started really... I think it was 22 years ago I decided that I was not going to be a closet writer anymore. I was going to announce myself to the world as a writer, and I was going to become involved with other writers. And I've never looked back. My whole world has changed because of it. And the, the accomplishments of the people that we know, the men and women that we know that toil in this industry in one way or another, it has, it's just enhanced everything about my life, you know? Me too. I agree. And the women um, have are such strong people. Mm-hmm. Many of them have amazing careers that they've they've gone through, and then they've said, like like ourselves, we say, okay, now at this point, I'm I'm no longer a closet writer. I'm going to I'm coming out of the closet, and I I maybe our kids are a little bit older and so on, so we have more time, and mm-hmm. uh, you know we we decide because a lot of the women writers are older. Um, and the reason for that is most of them uh, have had previous careers. And I mm-hmm. think their life experiences have made them such strong, interesting people. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, too, that I've noticed is that the men that I've met, uh, that I've, the men that we've uh, met really have a strong feminine side. And maybe that's because they are writers and they are uh, expressing themselves. And I don't know. I just think we've been very... Um, and my life has been enhanced by the, the men that I've met, too, in this uh, this industry. And I know, you know, other industries right now are uh, having to face some terrible truths about the males that have been involved. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, I just think, uh, you know, like Anthony Badolka and uh, just yes. wonderful, yes. strong men who have been alongside the females in our in our writing, yes. at least in our Canadian Crime Writers of Canada. Not just in Canada. This is a more global truth than that. Um, I work closely with an American writer by the name of Stephen Moore. And Stephen writes as often from a female point of view as he does from a male. Um, wow. And he, he, I, I've commented to him before on his his ability to get into that skin. And he says it's really just because as a writer, having been forced to really study people, and half of people are right. women. You know, you you cheat yourself if you don't put your best understanding onto the other half of the population. And uh, right. he's known so many strong women in his uh, life. He he was blessed with two marriages. Um, his first marriage, his his wife died sadly, but then oh. he was blessed with a second chance marriage um, yeah. and another yeah. strong, loving woman. And um, wow. so he's been always blessed with strong women in his life. And he said that it's a tribute to them, really, when he writes from a female point of view. Sure. Yes. Yeah, and I've written from a male point of view a couple of times, um, and I think putting exactly as you said, you put yourself in their shoes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's it's such a an amazing experience because you bring all of the uh, experiences that you've had with the male people in your life and uh, express 
how you felt about that. Yes, yes. Um, it's not enough to get angry about something like the Me Too movement. It's imp- And I say this as a survivor of just really what I now know were horrendous crimes in my childhood. Um, mm-hmm. At the time, I took them as this is the way life is. Everybody must go right. through this, you know. Um, yep. But I know now through more education about the world that they were horrendous. But it's not enough to hate the criminal or hate the crime. It's we have to be better than that. We have to know what's going on here. Try to understand yes. it and try to find solutions. Yes, absolutely. And understand yep. that uh, both men and women, all people come at the world with the same basic needs. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that, that brings me back to, you know, my time in education when, uh, you know, the, the societal influences on both the males and females as little we people, you know, they came into the the schools with already built in biases and mm-hmm. uh, it was it was disheartening to see, but it's not impossible to overcome those no. and to teach them, you know, both male and female, that there are different ways to look at the world and to look at each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and it, it, again it goes back to the diversity too of our population. Yes. And uh, you know, how yes. we are able to, um, but yeah, it's um, it's really um, such an important perspective to look at people and all in all their diversity, and to um, you know try to uh, bring all of us together in in community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a new show yeah. on Netflix now. Now I, I will admit we haven't seen it yet because Kathy and I are airing on March 18th, but we're actually speaking in late February. And right now the Olympics are about to wind up, so I'm oh, not right. sure anybody in Canada is watching anything but that. Like it's been fascinating. <laughs> but there's a new show coming out that we intend to to dive into. It's called Seven Seconds, and. I said to the kids, I don't know whether it's a good show or not. I have no idea. I haven't seen it. I haven't even read any of the reviews about it. But um, I think it may be one of those shows that if you really want to broaden your understanding about humanity, maybe it's one of those shows, you know? It looks oh, like it. Oh, good. I'll have to look for yeah. that. I'll get back to you listeners in a future episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, now it's time for tips for writers. Catherine, what can you tell our writers? Well, I I would say have faith in your writing. Uh, I think that sometimes we are too much uh, buffeted by uh, other people's reactions and we don't plow ahead to realize that, you know, hey, I've actually invented something completely different here. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, to have I guess it's it's more like a persistence. Keep going. Keep learning. Of course, listen to critiques, but make sure that they are they come from a place uh, that you trust. And um, you know, try all kinds of different things. I mean, you know, poetry and short stories and novellas and uh, you know, all kinds of different writing. Try it and and perfect your technique and. Keep, uh, keep the faith, you know, because it's mm-hmm. really a difficult, very um, highly competitive business if you want to be a published author. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people um, could get so much out of writing 
and you don't necessarily have to have it published. Uh, but if you want it published, keep going, keep mm-hmm. learning, keep honing honing your skills and your ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a great time really to be a writer in some ways, even though it's a hugely competitive place mm-hmm. to be. But it's also there's huge opportunity now. Um, you know, you can invest in your own product. Yes. Uh, now nowadays it's not you know. Uh, looked at as oh that's vanity press. No, you are investing. You are in the product. Yeah, and, and you've got to go down this twisted path because I'm telling you, people, that times yeah. of great upheaval in any industry are times of massive opportunity. They really exactly. are. I mean, if we can suffer through the the challenges that this changing industry are, is presenting, then we are poised and we are positioned to be you know, this generation's fighters and pioneers and trailblazers and, uh, you know, what a fun thing. That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I know there are those negative aspects because trying to get your name out there, um, particularly particularly in smaller countries like ours where we have a smaller population, not, Mm -hmm. not, not size of country, but size of population, um, you know, it is difficult to be known, um, but uh, yeah, there are just so many fabulous opportunities in creative marketing and, uh, you know, acceptance of different kinds of writing yes. that, uh, yeah, we're on, we're on the edge of, of really great <laughs> Lady Gaga, we're on the edge of glory. And you know what? Somebody else said that at work the other day, jokingly, we're on the edge of glory. And I, I love that phrase. Thank you, Lady yeah, Gaga. That's good. That's good. I love it. Um, yeah. What's next for Catherine Astolfo? Well, I'm going to make a confession here, Donna, so you you know your listeners might want to cover their ears, but I I understand. I understand. I understand. <laughs> I have been writing movie scripts with mm-hmm. my children, ah. uh, who have both been um, slaves to the, the film industry for a very long time. And by that, I mean unpaid uh, people who <laughs> work really, really hard. Not unlike myself. <laughs> um, and uh, they, uh, you know, I, I just, so they've said, now, who could put a sort of twisted, um, you know, spin on this idea? I know. It could be our mom. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> and, and you know what? By the time our listeners hear this interview, they will have already heard your story, The Outlier from 13 Claws. Um, and uh, they're going to know what you're talking about, that, yes, people turn to you when they want a twist. <laughs> yeah. mm. I, uh, I know. A lot of people, when they meet me, they say, you know, oh, you're the one who wrote that? I mean, Yeah, they can't believe it, right? (laughs) Kathy, it's been just an absolute delight having you on. Really, really a lot of fun. Stay with me after we go off the air because I'll just chat with you for a second. But thank you for joining us on Dead to Rights. Oh, thank you, Donna. This is such a great idea, and I'm very honored to be part of it. It is a great idea, isn't it? It really yeah. is. I think people can really like hearing from these authors. I want to send a big thank you to deadly friend Kathy Astolfo for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at Dead to Rights Pod. 
We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick or at my website, DonnaCarrick.com. If you're a published author and would like to join our listeners on the pod, contact me at CarrickPublishing at Rogers.com and say, schedule me for an interview. Join us next week when we bring you a fascinating interview with leader consultant and author Carl Bimshaz. Carl comes all the way from California to be on Dead to Rights the Pod, so I hope you'll bring him a big welcome. We'll also bring you, of course, another short story reading. This one will be There's No Such Thing as Time by Alec Carrick. Our Dead to Rights Facebook page can be found under Dead to Rights. Our theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, who also brought us the original story scoring music. Thanks again for joining us. I hope we'll see you all next week. Dusty road, a man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me. We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it rock.